Kids who have disabilities have a legal right to help in public schools. And that help is supposed to include planning for what will happen to them after high school. Federal law requires schools to help students with disabilities set goals for further education, for careers, and for living independently. But many parents and experts say the schools often set those goals too low. You know, he's fully capable of a lot of things that the school district did not think he could do. One of the things that we heard over and over again is that the vast majority of students with disabilities can go on to college. From APM Reports, this is Educate, a podcast in collaboration with The Heckinger Report. I'm Stephen Smith. Jackie Mader and Sarah Butramovich are journalists at The Heckinger Report, and they've been reporting on the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, also known as the IDEA law, and the obligation that schools have to help students with disabilities transition out of high school. Can you tell us a bit about what exactly the legal obligations are, what they have to do? So schools are legally obligated to create a what's called a transition plan for every student who has been identified under the federal IDEA law as having a disability. And that transition plan, um, which must be developed by age 16, and it sets up independent living goals, uh, career or work goals, and academic goals for post-graduation. So the goal is to help this student transition out of the K-12 world into post-secondary life. The transition plan is part of a student's Individualized Education Program, or IEP. And that is basically a very detailed, long paper document that sets up, you know, what the students should receive in school due to their disabilities. So students may qualify as having the same disability, but what that actually looks like um, in terms of their education plan can be very different. Well, how well are schools doing at helping students with these transition plans? Our reporting found that, for the most part, schools were not doing a great job, especially, I mean, they weren't doing a great job throughout uh, a student's K-12 life uh, in, in terms of providing them the supports they need. But with the transition plan in particular, um, it, it was described to us by many experts as something that was just kind of forgotten. And, you know, when a student got to the age of 16, when they were legally required to have this plan in place, it would kind of be just filling out the paperwork just to have something. But we spoke to many people who, you know, had parents who brought IEPs to them where they said the goals just didn't make sense. There was no follow through to make sure that the goals were actually being put into place. Let's talk about a fellow you met in Philadelphia, a young man named Peter O'Halloran. Peter is a young adult who grew up in a suburb of Philadelphia. At birth, doctors found out that I wasn't breathing, and I spent 10 days in neonatal intensive care unit. After that, they, I found out that I have a bunch of different disabilities. Those include mixed receptive expressive language disorder. So it's sometimes when I'm talking, my thoughts aren't always getting out, and sometimes I talk a little bit choppy. I also have a cortical visual impairment, so I'm not able to see everything uh, to the best of my ability. Um, I also am diagnosed with ADHD and, ADHD and ADD, which means that sometimes I'm not always paying attention. Um, and I also have uh, dyslexia, which is a challenge to read. 
he was attending high school and his high school said, you know, let's let's put Peter in this cooking program. Um, we think he'll do really well there. And that was, you know, kind of the average path for a student with multiple disabilities um, like Peter. And his mom said no. Um, Peter l- likes to cook, but he's not really skilled at it and didn't really have that much of an interest in it. This is Peter's mom, Christine Bradley. One of the ways that high schools can improve how they're teaching um, students with disabilities is to raise their level of expectation. We, we need our kids to be working. Um, we aren't expecting them to be graduating to a life on the couch. Most kids are capable of being employed, and we need to help them in the same way that we would explicitly teach them other skills. We need to explicitly teach them job searching skills, interviewing skills, social skills for on the job. What are the incentives or disincentives or, or penalties, if there are any, for schools to to meet their obligations? Is that where the problem lies, that they're just there's neither a carrot nor a stick? Yeah, I think you put it really well. Uh, the The problem is that school districts, technically they can be sued if they're violating the law, and, and some people do take that step. Um, it's a lot of time. It's a lot of money. And so districts, you know, advocates told us that districts kind of just bank on the fact that most people aren't going to do that as long as they're still, you know, providing some education to the students and kind of getting them through high school. Most people aren't going to look too closely. Parents might not even know that transition plans are, you know, such a crucial piece of this. And they might be kind of aware that they exist, but not really examine them closely if teachers aren't telling them how important they are. So there, there's not a lot of reasons for districts other than, you know, caring about students to to really work on this. Um, and then on the flip side, IDEA has been underfunded by the federal government uh, for, I think, as long as it's been around. Uh, so under the law, the federal government is supposed to give school districts 40% of what they call the excess cost of educating a student with dis- a disability. So that means that if it costs $10,000 to educate a average student in a district and $15,000 to educate a special education student or student in special education, the federal government is supposed to apply 40% of that $5,000. There was an analysis that was done a couple of years ago that found that we're at about 16% of the excess cost and it would cost $18 billion more to actually fully fund IDEA. So districts, it's not just a matter of them, you know, hoping they can get away with things, but they also don't have the resources and they can't have people focused on this. They don't have the money to do that. Teachers aren't trained to do it. So there's just a lot of systemic issues at play. Jackie, you used to be a special education teacher. Did you help students with disabilities make these kinds of transition plans? And and what did it look like? Yes. Um, So I I was a special education teacher in a middle school in North Carolina And uh, we started with our students when they were 14. We started writing these transition plans. There's very little time to take all these individual goals and go student to student and track, you know, what are we doing to get them there? Especially when they're 14 or 16, you tend to be more focused on teaching them and, at you know, the lesson of the day versus having the time to really follow through on these plans. And that was something that we heard from experts and teachers and administrators was there may not be, you know, time for teachers to really follow through on making sure these transition plans are really in-depth and um, well thought out. Are there many students with disabilities who are being steered either towards or away from higher education? 
I think that, you know, advocates and experts would express concern that the the difference in enrollment is wider than it should be. Um, and it can't all be explained away by a disability. And even those who do enroll in college, um, students with disabilities who do go on to enroll in college, so that means they've met certain requirements to be able to do that. Um, they have really low graduation rates. So it's about a third of students with disabilities who enroll in a four-year school graduate within eight years. So even those who have cleared those benchmarks, um, which would indicate that their disability should not prevent them from obtaining a degree, something is still missing along the way and they're not able to ultimately succeed. Is there much of a movement in this country to hold the school systems accountable for their obligation under the law to help students with disabilities, you know, develop these transition plans? Or is this one of those things where there just isn't a lot of political muscle for a group that is struggling just to sort of make it on its own? There is a Supreme Court decision that came down last year. One of the quotes from the opinion was, a student offered an education program providing merely more than de minimis progress from year to year can hardly be said to have been offered an education at all. It was a unanimous ruling, uh, I believe brought on from a, a student in Colorado who sued the school system basically just saying that he was passed on from year to year, barely learning anything. So a, a lot of legal experts are really kind of interested in seeing how that ends up trickling down to the state level. But now that the Supreme Court has kind of ruled it's not just enough to have a student show up and, and barely teach them something, that you really have to be striving for something more. And so ultimately, you would think that that would also influence transition plans. And I, the other thing, under Education Secretary Betsy DeVos, she kind of fumbled a bit on it during her confirmation hearing. I want to go back to the Individual with Disabilities and Education Act. That's a federal civil rights law. So do you stand by your statement a few minutes ago that it should be up to the states whether to follow it? The law must be followed. Federal law must be followed where federal dollars are in, in play. So were you unaware when I just asked you about the IDEA that it was a federal law? I may have confused it. She got a lot of pressure from the special education community as a result of that. And in both the budget proposals that the Trump administration has now put out, special education has at least not had any budget cuts, which cannot be said for um, many other education programs. So there, there are some signs that things might not be getting worse and, and maybe getting better, but I, I think it's still pretty up in the air what's actually going to happen. For this uh, reporting project, you both you interviewed more than 100 students, parents, advocates, experts, all around this topic of transition planning for students with disabilities. I'll start with you, Sarah. What were some of the takeaways from those interviews? So one of the things that really struck me is you know, we found people that had had really good experiences. Um, we found, unfortunately, more people who had had really bad experiences. And those who had really bad experiences, it really didn't seem to matter um, what part of the country you were in, what kind of school district you were in. Um, you know, like, I spoke to people that were in what outsiders would probably consider really excellent school systems and probably are really excellent school systems for most of the students there who had just had really terrible experiences in their special education system. Uh, so I think it's really important to remember that this is, you know, not just a problem in one group of schools or in one part of the country, but it seems to be a problem that's very widespread. Jackie, what about you? What what struck you? 
So what stuck out to me the most during this reporting was for the students who had a lot of success, it tended to be due to the fact that they had parents who really had time to pour a lot of attention and advocacy work and energy into making sure that their students were getting what they needed and what they deserved. And not every family has the time or resources, and it doesn't mean they don't care about their students. It just came down to, you know, if a family really had the time to maybe put, you know, a parent's career on hold and advocate for their children, they tended to have more success. So I think that was something that Sarah and I both, you know, kept coming back to was these quote-unquote success stories we heard, there was usually a very strong parent advocate behind them. And usually those parents had spent a lot of money and a lot of time just to make sure their students were being treated fairly and getting the attention and help they deserved. That's what seemed to make a difference for Peter O'Halloran, the young man who didn't want to go to cooking school. He and his family pushed his school to come up with a more ambitious plan. Peter, you know, knew as a teenager he wanted to work in an office and he wanted to attend some college classes and he eventually wanted to get a house and live on his own. And his parents really pushed to make sure his transition plan reflected that. Eventually, his high school, his school district opened up an office management program and he ended up enrolling in that in high school. He completed some credits at a local community college. He's now employed full-time by a nonprofit in downtown Philadelphia. I'm very proud of myself that uh, even though it's challenging and people underestimate you, uh, you're able to break through. I wish that uh, people would look at people with disabilities and they are capable of having jobs and capable of living independently as much as possible. Um, I sort of wish that that people weren't going to underestimate us and think, oh, you're never going to read or you're never going to write, but every time you're just trying to prove people wrong. That's it for this episode. We'd love to hear from you. Tell us how this podcast made you think about how well schools are preparing students with disabilities for life after high school. You can let us know on Twitter and Facebook at Educate Podcast, or send us a note to contact at apmreports.org. We also want to know if going to college changed your social class. APM Reports is producing a documentary about colleges and economic mobility. We want to know what people gain and what they lose when they change social classes and what higher education has to do with it. You can tell us your story by filling out a brief questionnaire at apmreports.org documentaries. That way we can get in touch with you. We'll be back in two weeks to talk about keeping student data safe from hackers. Alex Baumhart and Chris Julin produced the podcast. Catherine Winter is our editor. Emily Hanford, our senior producer. Sound engineer for this episode was Cameron Wiley. We partner with the Heckinger Report, which is a nonprofit independent news organization focused on inequality and innovation in education. Support for APM Reports comes from Lumina Foundation and the Spencer Foundation. I'm Stephen Smith. Thanks for listening. This is APM.